Amen. You may be seated. It's our great privilege to have our brother Drew Goodman here. I'm sure he's a little bit jet-lagged. I think he got in on Friday. He was at a missions conference at our sister church at Christ Church yesterday, and he's here preaching for us today. What a joy. What a joy, particularly for an older minister in First Presbyterian. I do consider myself as an older minister now. Seeing these young guys that the Lord brings and calls and then uses and sends out into the world, uh, and he has sent our brother to Barry Wells, and Drew has been doing a remarkable work there, and that congregation, but more so also in the whole denomination. He is such a blessing to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and of Wales. And also, by the way, he's working on his PhD from Westminster. So soon to be, Dr. Goodman, please come forward and preach the Lord's word to us. Well, good morning to you and grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I gladly bring you the greetings of your sister church, Christ Church Presbyterian in Barry, Wales, and it is our delight uh, to share fellowship with you in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn, if you will, please, to our sermon text. The uh, theme of uh, this month's sermon series is the solas of the Reformation, and gladly it falls to me. Uh, to expound this section of scripture from Galatians chapter 3, uh, dealing with the wonderful doctrine of God's grace alone by which we are saved. Our sermon text is taken from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Let us give our attention to the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thus far the word of God, and let us now turn to him for his aid. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending us your son to be our prophet, our priest, and our king to reveal the way of eternal life, and to give us that truth which truly sets us free. We thank you also that he is our redeemer and that he has finished the work that you sent him to accomplish. We pray that in the merits of that finished work that you might grant salvation from on high, that you might send aid from the sanctuary above and lend strength to your people who seek to know 
and to obey and believe your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have children or grandchildren or have served the children of the church, you, you may realize that it seems increasingly each year children anticipate Christmas earlier and earlier. It seems as though February comes around and they're already thinking about what they would like to have for Christmas gifts. Now, one of the beautiful things about Christmas is, of course, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we express our joy in God's gift to us in giving gifts to men. Now, if you were imagining sitting around the Christmas tree and you give a gift to one of these little ones, and one of the little ones responds to you, thank you, thank you for this gift. I'm so grateful. Now, please, how much do I owe you? Well, you would respond, it's a gift. It's freely given. And they would say, oh, but just a penny. May I contribute something? Now, the point of this illustration is to suggest that a gift is not a gift if payment is offered in return. Even just one penny would totally undo the meaning of that gift. When we want to understand the, the Protestant Reformation, when we want to understand the, the solas, the biblical doctrine of God's free grace given to us, we need to see that it is this word, alone, that really marks what grace is in comparison to what grace is not. After all, at the time of the Reformers, both sides of that debate believed in grace, believed in faith, in Christ, in the scriptures, and in the glory of God. But it was the addition of the word alone that recovered and clarified the Bible's teaching of grace alone. The point was, and the point continues today, that if grace is not God's gift alone, if it is not his doing alone, then it is no longer grace in the biblical and pure sense. The addition of any human contribution to God's work means that we no longer rely on him alone for the standing that we have in our relationship with him. If it is not faith alone, it is not biblical trust which receives God's promise of salvation and rests securely in him, but rather relies upon human teaching which promotes confidence in man's effort. You see, the key point of the Reformation, which arises out of our text this morning, is that grace, if it is not alone, is not grace. Salvation is of the Lord entirely. We're going to see this truth coming out of this text in these two ways. First of all, the Apostle Paul shows us a way of salvation that is closed. The door is barred to the way of works. We see that in verses 10 through 12. And secondly, we see the door of the gospel that God has opened in his Son, which all may freely enter who hear the good news and respond in faith. We see that in verses 13 through 14. First of all, the way of works, which is closed. He says in verse 10, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now the first thing that we need to appreciate is this distinction that Paul makes between works of the law and faith. Paul is here expanding a thought that began earlier in the epistle in chapter 2 verse 16. That there are two approaches to God which are you can't do both of them simultaneously. As a sinner seeks to be right with God, one either approaches God on his own standing, his or her own standing, or in reliance upon a standing that God gives freely. One cannot pursue both faith and works. One cannot seek to find pardon and righteousness as a gift, but also seek to repay the Lord in any way. Galatians chapter 2 says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, what does Paul mean here when he uses this term, justification? One of the Puritans, William Perkins, said it this way. He says, that which is called in Scripture the justice or righteousness of God, that alone is sufficient to acquit a sinner at the bar of God's judgment. Here in this concept is the the notion that we all must stand before the Lord and our lives will be measured in his holy vision. The opposite of justification is condemnation. Condemnation is that final confirmation that a person stands guilty and unworthy before him. Justification is the opposite of this verdict of condemnation. You see, when God justifies a person, he declares him or her to be right with God in all things, innocent of all sin. We thank God for the good news of Psalm 32, that God does not count our sins against us, but provides a way of cleansing and pardon. He says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In the book of Romans, Paul picks up on this very psalm, and he makes the point that if God does not count our sins against us, if he does not count our bad deeds to our credit, well, then neither does he count any so-called good deeds to our credit. God does not base our standing before him at all, either on the good or on the bad. Forgiveness has been attained for sinners instead, through the work of another, through the blood of Christ, and through the obedience of the Son, the well-beloved Son of the Father, who perfectly fulfilled his will. It was this promise proclaimed, as our text says, to Abraham in advance, who believed and trusted that God was faithful and would do not only to others, but also to him, all that he had promised. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Instead of God counting our sins against us, as he very well could, instead, he has chosen to count the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, 
to be those, to be theirs, who look to him alone. God's Son, our Savior, was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. And the Father is pleased, delighted, to look upon his Son, to look upon his merits and his obedience, his sacrifice in our stead, and on that basis to accept us as pleasing in his sight. Now, not only does Paul distinguish between law and faith, but he also makes it personal. You see here the text and what it says, those of the works of the law. He's not just distinguishing two principles or two potential ways of approaching God. He's talking about people who embrace one principle, one way, or the other. Paul says there are those of the law, and there are those of faith. Martin Luther, in commenting on this, said, to be of the law and to be of the faith are quite contrary. For they who are of the law are those who would seek to be justified by the law. But those of faith assuredly trust and are justified through the mercy alone for Christ's sake. You see, when Paul begins to make this principle personal, it urges the question upon the Galatians and even us today, what kind of a person am I? Which approach am I trusting in? Are you of works or are you of faith? Do we place confidence, even in the least, even that penny contribution to that Christmas gift in our moral behavior and the reputation that we enjoy among people? Is that the basis, even in the least, of our standing before God? Now, another illustration is that maybe you've ever had the experience of trying to walk through a door and you're trying to, to push a door that is meant to be pulled towards you. And maybe you think, at, after a, a couple attempts, ah, oh, maybe the, the door is just heavy. Maybe it's just stuck. And so you press a little harder until you realize, nope, can't push that door, no matter how hard you try. Now, at the worst, you may be embarrassed for a moment. But when it comes to pushing at the door of works, in order to attain acceptance with God, it will result in much more than embarrassment. It says here that all who rely on works are under a curse. As long as one seeks to gain acceptance with God by offering him something that we have done, by pleading something that we think we are, Entry will be barred. That is what Paul means. All are under a curse. Being cut off from the life that is in God and subject to sin's penalty and its corruption. The Apostle Paul cites Moses in defense of this truth. He says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You see, the reason that that door will not open to anyone is because it would only open 
if we fulfilled the law in its entirety and in perfection. Because we do not abide by all things written in the law, the door will never open, no matter how hard anyone tried. Now, there are probably two kinds of people who we might say can be described those who are of works. There may be those, as Paul might have been contending with, who were truly confident in their religious devotion and their moral conduct. They prized themselves as having a righteousness sufficient to impress God and to gain his acceptance. They were knowingly, consciously self-confident in their, in their works. But there's probably a larger group of people who are of the works that we would say are not knowingly self-confident. They may be blind to the confidence that they are putting in themselves. They may not outwardly boast. They may not be outwardly preoccupied and, and seek to impress others as the Pharisees did about their religious performances. They may not be outwardly boasting, but inwardly they're hoping that they've just done enough. That though their works were not good enough, they imagine that God would nevertheless grade on a curve, that he would accept them, that he would look upon the sincerity in their hearts. But you see the deception of this approach. Calvin wrote, the human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks. It is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that often our hearts dupe ourselves. You see, most people who are of works are probably in this camp. They're not proud of their lives, but they consider themselves people who have been sincere. They hope God looks more upon their hearts, that he looks more upon whatever good they were able to manage, and that somehow that would outweigh the bad. They have no assurance. They do not know for certain what the future holds for them. They only have a vain hope that God will treat them with leniency. But Paul dashes this superstition all who rely on works are under a curse. You see, works brings no assurance of salvation. In fact, it brings assurance of curse. That way is closed. But there is an open door, secondly, in verses 13 through 14. Whereas reliance upon the law leads to curse, Christ has come forth for this very reason, to rescue us from that curse, to free us from relying upon ourselves, to give us confidence in the midst of our questions about the future and our certainty to meet God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. While it was impossible for us to attain life through our obedience, Christ attained it for us 
by an obedience, even unto death. You see, to be hung upon a cross was an especially symbolic symbol of one who was accursed and cut off from God. The significance of Jesus dying upon the cross is that he bore a curse not for the sake of his own sins, for he is the sinless and righteous one, but rather he bore a curse for others. He bore it as the redeemer of his people. And just as God accounts us to be righteous through faith, so too did he account upon the cross. So too did he impute our sin to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him to be sin who had no sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah preached the gospel beforehand, saying, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the way. It is, pushed, it is pulled open by faith. It is received as a gift. This way is open today. If there was another way, it would have not cost our Savior so dear a price. If there wasn't a way, if there was another way, the Savior would not have had to drink from the cup of judgment as he did. The lengths that God went to in sending his Son speaks to us about the desperation, about the inability to be saved any other way. And instead, does it not magnify the giver? Does it not exalt the greatness of his loving heart? Him who lavished upon us grace upon grace. When we see the gift, would we want to give even a penny in return? The door of works of vain self-confidence is shut and will not yield no matter how hard it is pressed. And all who seek do so unnecessarily. They do so to their own exhaustion and spiritual injury. There is no rest, no peace, no security, but ultimately shame and defeat. But rest is offered freely to whomsoever will. It is offered this day. It is to be received as that open door through faith. To rest in him who is the way and the truth and the life. Who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls. So many are wearing themselves out, pushing at that door. When all that is needed is to receive and rest in Jesus Christ. The gospel is open to you today. Today is the day of salvation. But in order to pass through, you must apprehend that you must leave all your pennies aside. It is the free gift of God by which we enter. We must forsake all other trust and fly to Christ, resting in him alone for pardon 
and for righteousness. The Apostle Paul said that God has made him to be our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And anyone who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Father, help us not to seek to repay you in any way, but to rest and receive your grace. We thank you for such a wondrous gift in our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.